this morning, um, especially when you looked at the, the topic that we're about to talk about. Anytime we talk about politics on a Saturday morning in Massachusetts, things are bound to get dicey. So uh, uh, if you'll open your Bible with me to 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 2. This is going to be our orienting text this morning. We'll come back to it again and again different ways as, as we work through this, uh, this session together. As we talk about what it means for the gospel to be better than politics or power in Washington, D.C., 1 Peter chapter 2, 11 through 17. <clears throat> Dear friends, I urge you as strangers and exiles to abstain from, the, from sinful desires that wage war against the soul. Conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles so that when they slander you as evildoers, they will observe your good works and will glorify God on the day he visits. Submit to every human authority because of the Lord, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors as those sent out by him to punish those who do what is evil and to praise those who do what is good. For it is God's will that you silence the ignorance of foolish people by doing good. Submit as free people, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but as God's slaves. Honor everyone. Love the brothers and sisters. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these words from the Apostle Peter. I pray that you would uh, help us to consider them well this morning, to apply them well to our lives and to um, the, the way that we live out in public according to your truth. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. A couple of years ago, I was um, uh, I had lunch with a, a retired pastor who had um, built a, had, had been influential in, in a lot of circles and had uh, been in a church that had grown significantly uh, during the time that he was there, he was in the same church in the same location for 40 years before he retired. And uh, and so I had all sorts of questions that I wanted to ask him because I, it's one thing to, to talk to someone who's been in ministry for 40 years. That in itself is is uh, a learning experience, something beautiful, right? But for, for me, with this particular individual, it was interesting that he had been in the same place for 40 years. So I figure there are all sorts of things that he might see that would be different than someone who'd been in several churches over that span of time. And so I wanted to know all sorts of things about how um, culture had changed, how church practices had changed, different things that he had seen as a leader. And we talked about a lot of those things, but as we started talking about our, our particular society and how culture had shifted in the last 40 years, his um, countenance changed. And he shook his head and he said to me, Trevin, sometimes I feel like I'm not at home in my own country anymore. And he was referring to the sort of tectonic shifts that are happening in society and how he had felt, he, he, it made him feel disoriented, a bit disillusioned. And um, uh, he was referring especially to, to moral changes in, in our society. And I remember leaving that conversation and I was a little down after that. I mean, it would have been, it had been a great conversation up to that point. And I remember being somewhat, um, you know, just down thinking that he is, uh, uh, was processing events in this way. And then sometime that afternoon, as I was kind of chewing on those words, it dawned on me, the way he felt is the way Christians should feel all the time. We should never feel quite at home in our own countries. And if we 
have ever felt too at home in our own country. Perhaps we've been more like the world than we would have liked to have thought we were. You know, we, we should, no matter, no matter how much we love where God has planted us, uh, we should always feel a little bit out of place, that, that things are not quite right here, that the Christian should never feel at home completely in this world. If we do, then there's a problem. And so I had to ask myself the question, okay, I, I, I've talked to other people who, have, who express similar sentiments, and I have to ask myself the question, why? Why are so many Christians right now feeling so disoriented about societal changes and, and what's, what's going on? And, and here's, here's the reality of what I think it is that, that we're facing and why a lot of people feel this way. Uh, this may not be completely applicable to you in the Northeast, as it is in other parts of, of the country, but uh, th- this is w- what's happening in a lot of evangelical circles across the country, this, this feeling of disorientation. Because in, in the world of my parents and grandparents, to be a Christian or to belong to a church was something of a badge of honor, right? It, it was a, a status that, that gave you cultural clout, People who belong to a church, it meant that you were an upstanding member of the community, right? You're an upstanding citizen. Uh, to, today, though, to belong to an evangelical church in particular, in a lot of places, no longer brings cultural clout, but there's a cultural cost. And so you say, well, what, what has changed from one generation to the next that, that this would be the case? Uh, one thing that... Uh, statistics will show is that our world is increasingly secular. And what I mean by that is that you've got more people, and you can see this now, uh, more people on surveys when they're asked what religion they are, are checking none. So you may have heard or you've seen articles about the rise of the nuns. That's not like from the Catholic convent, they're going to take over the world. It's, it's, it's not N-U-N-S, but those who check none on the survey saying, I just, I don't belong to any religion. Um, I, I don't belong to a denomination. Um, now, numerically, there are more evangelicals now in the United States than ever before in our history. Numerically. And we're a little bit behind keeping up with population growth. So our percentage of the population has dropped a little bit. But there is still massive growth overall in numbers when it comes to, to evangelicals. Mainline denominations, it's a different story. Um, mainline denominations uh, like the PCUSA, United Methodist Church, um, uh, Episcopalian Church, these numbers have have plummeted uh, to to such staggering low numbers and so fast that there are some statisticians, I work with a couple at LifeWay, who have told me like, oh, I know when the this uh, the ELCA, the Evangelical Lutheran Church of America. I'm, I'm pretty confident I know when they're going to close their last door. Like they can chart it out if the trends were to continue, right? So you're you're seeing that, um, and there are some slight upticks in other religions uh, here and there. But the biggest shift are people who are checking, who once checked Christian on a survey, and now are checking none. And so because of that, because there are more people that are identifying as secular or saying they don't have a religion uh, the way that their parents or their grandparents may have, evangelical Christians, Orthodox Christians, Catholics who hold these, these ancient beliefs about God and humanity and salvation and in particular sexual ethics, 
these days are, are feeling more than ever this sense of disorientation. Uh, we're taking flack for views that were commonly accepted just a, a generation ago. And so I want us to first wrestle with that. If we're going to talk about our current context and, and what it means to be a Christian in this age, we need to ask the question, okay, what's happened then? I mean, we're still a free country where diversity of opinion is celebrated, right? I mean, that's the, that's the idea. <laughs> uh, wh- why the change? You know, why this sense of disorientation? Uh, I think possibly two reasons, okay? One, I think a lot of people believe a myth about Christianity. They believe that religion or that Christianity in particular is private, that it's merely personal. Uh, a lot of people, when we talk about religious freedom or religious liberty, a lot of people think religious freedom means you can believe whatever you want, as long as you do it privately, as long as it's just in the context of your local church, right? And a lot of people will say, yeah, religion is good where it belongs. You need to keep religion in its place. It doesn't really belong in the, in the public square, you know, the sphere of politics or education or business or other public spaces. Those need to be off limits from, from religious belief or religious intrusion. So in a sense, a lot of people think religious freedom means you have the right to worship and believe whatever you want in the privacy of your own home or your own church. But when you walk out the doors, you sort of check those beliefs at the door when you go out into society. And if you insist too strongly on the right to live according to your convictions out in public, people may think you're a religious extremist. And you know what a religious extremist, you know, some people think, well, there are religious extremists who are members of perhaps some sort of harmless cult, and then you've got religious extremists who are terrorists who want to establish a theocracy, right? So taking religion too seriously, a lot of people think, taking religion too seriously or taking your views out in public is a problem in our world, not a solution. And so that idea that Christianity is private puts us in a little bit of a bind considering the fact that we believe that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead publicly and that it changes everything about our world. That it's not just some sort of private addition to our life, but that it changes everything for everyone and that we're now called to extend the gospel to everyone and call people to repentance and faith. Okay, so that's the, that's one, one reason I think that we, we have this tension. People think Christianity is private. A second reason is that Christianity is polarizing. It's, Christianity is polarizing. Uh, Tim Keller, uh, pastor in New York City, has, has says, um, interestingly enough, the number of the devout people in our country is increasing as well as the number of secular people. And he says the big change is the erosion in the middle what he calls the, the mushy middle, okay? So Tim Keller says that there, there are these people in the mushy middle, they once identified as Christian, and they may have attended church occasionally, right? So these are people who, the Catholic church is the church they don't go to, except on Easter, right? Or that, that this is sort of the, 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 uh, uh, the, the people had some sort of a connection or affiliation, so they identified with a church, but really were, we, we would say would be nominal in name only, not really active or practicing, uh, weren't particularly devout. So this mushy middle, these people who are not on the devout side and they're not on the secular side, they, they sort of identify more with Christian than they have with secular, uh, 
he, what, what Keller says has happened is now they've gone the other way. The mushy middle, nominal Christians, used to identify more with Christianity. Now, more and more, and you're seeing this on the survey with the rise of the nuns, they're identifying more and more with those who are secular. And so what that means is this sort of Christian-y culture that was there. You have devout Christians, and then you had a lot of people who weren't really devout, but they were respectful toward Christianity. That is changing. That's disappearing. And he even he uses the analogy of an umbrella. He says, uh, because of that mushy middle identifying with Christians, for the longest time, devout Christians in the United States have had this sort of cultural umbrella over them that sort of sheltered them, uh, sheltered us from from uh, uh, the the uh, views of people that would be hostile to Christianity because of our of our beliefs. And so you wouldn't, even if you didn't believe in Christianity, those over here on the secular side, it didn't help you to be hostile to Christians. So you just sort of kept quiet primarily. You wouldn't be open about it. And you would show Christians a measure of respect just because of the, the cultural clout that Christians had. Uh, what's changing, Keller says, is for the first time in history, a growing group of people who think the Bible is bad that the Bible is dangerous, it's regressive, it's a bad cultural force. And now, of course, the devout suddenly realize that they are out there, the umbrella is gone, and they are taking a lot of flack for their views. So that's what, what, what Keller thinks is happening, and I think that's very close to, to, to uh, the, the, the true picture here. But here's the good news for us. Christians, historically have thrived at the margins of society. In fact, in the first century, when the Apostle Peter wrote to these early Christians, many of whom were suffering for their faith, you notice he called them in that passage we read, he called them exiles. These are not people with cultural levers of power here. So in this session, I want us to look at this passage again and answer two questions. Two big questions are, is going to sort of frame our, our, our time. Who are we? And what should we be known for? Who are we as Christians in this world? And what should we be known for as Christians in this world? And as we do this, I'm going to apply this uh, politically and in some public spaces here and there. Okay? So first, who are we? The first thing I would say, uh, the first answer to that question, we have to stop with the very first word in verse 11. Uh, your the translation may say beloved, may say dear friends. That, that word is filled with meaning. It communicates the love that Peter has for these brothers and sisters, but it also communicates the love that God has for them, right? That God has shown love toward them in the sacrificial love of Jesus Christ. So I want, I want, I want us to just stop right there with that first word, beloved, or friends, friends of each other, friends of God, right? And to say, okay, if we are beloved, uh, what exactly, let's just unpack what that means. And there are two aspects to this. One is horizontal, and one is vertical. So let's start with the horizontal aspect. Uh, first, when Paul, uh, when Peter is saying you are beloved, I think he's referring, first of all, that he's talking to, to them as uh, together, friends with God, friends with each other, beloved family of God, brothers and sisters. So he's talking about, first, the love that we have as brothers and sisters in Christ. And I, I think it's important for us to stop there and to remember that we are beloved together because one of the ways that we equip people, that we equip believers to bear a stigma for standing for Christ 
is when we do it together as the family of God. You know, it's one thing to be a lone Christian individual out there taking a stand. Um, It's another thing to know that you have a church behind you. That you have a great cloud of witnesses above you. And you have a global remnant of faithful believers all around you. Okay? So, a lot of people, when they sense a stigma for following Christ, and they sense that in a lot of ways that the political winds have shifted or, or societal winds have shifted and so that their views are now unacceptable for decent, upstanding people in the United States. A lot of people, and even right now, they have this tendency and this temptation. They say, well, we just need to pull back from politics. Let's, let's adopt this run for the hills kind of mentality. If you do that, you're going to wind up like the prophet Elijah. Do you remember Elijah after he was after he called down fire from heaven on Mount Carmel, is on the run, scared to death of Jezebel. This is the God who just sent fire down. And Elijah is on the run, scared of Jezebel. And he's when he's in the cave and he's talking, to, he's bemoaning the fact that so few people are faithful. We shouldn't be like that. In fact, we look at Elijah and we think, Elijah, that's silly. And yet, how many of us do the same thing? How many of us think the same thing? Here, we need, to, we need to remember we belong to this family of God, beloved brothers and sisters. Um, there are millions of Christians who have not and will never bow the knee to Baal. We belong to a church that has outlasted and will outlast all empires, including the American one. Uh, We stand in a long line of men and women who rejoiced to suffer for the name of the Savior. What is a lion in a Colosseum next to the Lion of Judah? Okay? So first, we need to have this horizontal understanding that we are part of the beloved family of God, and we have a church with us. We're never just us alone taking a stand. Even if you're in a situation where you feel alone, you need to remember I belong to a family of God that is cheering me on, okay? That's the, the, first, the first place. The second level, though, is vertical. Beloved, I'm sure Peter, when he's using this, this term, terminology of beloved or dear friends, he's, he's not simply referring to us being friends together, but also being friends of God, being loved by God, that God is the one who has showered his love on us. He has demonstrated his love to the gift of his son. God loves you right? That's where we have to uh, uh, plant our flag. And here's why I'm, I'm pausing for a moment on this. So yes, we need to recognize if we're going to be faithful in a time when it's difficult, we need to recognize we have the church behind us, but we also need to make sure that we are emphasizing and, experience, and experiencing God's love for us. That's what will help fortify Christian faith, Christian witness in our day. Listen, if you fail to get this truth deep down into your heart, if you fail to recognize God's unfailing, unchanging love for you, no matter your circumstances, no matter your trials, no matter what it is you're going through, no matter the stigma that you receive because you're a faithful Christian, if you don't get that truth deep into your heart, you are not going to represent him well in exile. The only way that you will be able to withstand the hatred of the world is if you are immersed in the love of God. 
the only way you will be able to live without the approval of other people is if you are assured of God's approval of, in, of you in Jesus Christ. The only way that you can stand against the world when everyone else is jeering you is if when you know that God, your heavenly Father, is there and he's cheering you on and he is calling you his beloved child. Unless we are overcome by the love of God, we will be overcome by the fear of man. So love, vertical love, God's love for us, vitally important if we are to to be faithful in this time. You've got horizontal and vertical love. And and here's just a couple of practical things. Um, How do you cultivate the horizontal love? Well, we need to be church people. We need to strengthen the bonds of our Christian community. The church, more and more, is going to need to feel like an oasis of faith, hope, and love in the middle of a dark world. This ought to be a place where uh, uh, the church ought to feel so much like a place of love that rejection from the world is more tolerable because we have embraced, we have received so much love from people in our congregation. So I ask you, what are you doing to make your church like that? Because we're going to need that. We're going to need the community of faith if we're going to, to be faithful in this time. And to cultivate the vertical aspect, that, the sense that God loves us, uh, we must immerse ourselves again and again in grace, in the inexhaustible fountain of God's love for us in Christ. Going back again and again to the gospel, recentering our mind, our hearts, our affections, and the way we sing and what we preach and what we listen to and how we read our, our Bibles to go back again and again to the gospel. It's so easy to drift from this. This is so important for us. A, a fountain, the fountain of God's love for us in Christ, this is the kind of fountain that refreshes us with our free and full salvation in Jesus Christ. And we know perfect love casts out fear, right? So the love we have for each other and the perfect love that God has for us, this is what can make us bold and unashamed and unafraid in the the days ahead. Okay, so we start there with uh, beloved. The next word, verse 11, is strangers or sojourners. Uh, So who are we? Well, we're beloved, number one. Number two, we're strangers or sojourners. And that gives you the image of travelers that are making their way from from one place to another. Uh, The word reminds me of two songs. Okay, this uh, one of them is a Christian camp song, and the other one is a, is an old hymn. Uh, the the folk song, some of you will know it. I'm not going to sing it. I wouldn't sing it normally, especially not with the cold I've got. Uh, the the world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. Heard that song before? Okay, that's one. That's a folk song. World is not my home. I'm just a passing through. And then there's a song called uh, a hymn, famous hymn called "This Is My Father's World." You know that one? Listen to those songs back to back sometime and you'll be scratching your head thinking, well, which one is it? Um, If this world isn't our home, then why are we singing about its beauty and how about it being our father's world? And, And if this world is our father's, why are we saying we're not at home here? We're just passing through, right? Have you ever wondered... How Christianity will like bring together two songs like that? Let me let me let me put this together for you. Why why both of them are are, are good songs in different ways? Uh, the truth is, 
this world is our home. Adam was not made for heaven. He was made for earth. Well, to be specific, he was made for something like a heaven on earth, right? But that, that's, God created humanity for, in places in this world. This is to be our, our, our home. But because the earth has been subjected to decay and the effects of sins, and now that the powers and principalities of this world have arrayed themselves against God, that's why we feel uneasy here. That's why we, 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 we feel like we're not at home. So we see the beauty of this world, but we also feel the heartache in this world. We, we see injustice in this world and we long for everything to be made right. And in one sense, this world in the present is not our permanent home. That's why we can sing about longing for the promised land like we just did. We are sojourners. But in another sense, this world is God's and he will reclaim it. As the hymn goes, one of the later verses of that hymn, this is my father's world. Oh, let me ne'er forget that though the wrongs seem off so strong, God is the ruler yet. This is my father's world. The battle is not done. Jesus who died will be satisfied and earth and heaven be one. That's the ultimate Christian hope. Not that God would whisk us away to take us to, to heaven, but that the new Jerusalem comes down from heaven onto earth in Revelation. That finally God's dwelling place is with man and that he wipes away every tear from every eye. So that's why we can sing both of those songs. And it's important for us when we think of ourselves as sojourners to not simply think of ourselves as I'm a citizen of another world and so I just sort of bide my time here. That's not the way that sojourner language works in the New Testament. You know, when the Philippians get called, um, uh, when, when Paul calls the Philippians citizens of heaven, and he speaks of the church in Philippi like a colony of heaven, a lot of people think, oh, I'm a citizen of heaven, so I'm just going to sort of bide my time, try to be faithful, wait for Jesus to come and take me back to my homeland. That is not the way that colonization language works. When the colonies came here and were established, literally here, um, when the colonies came, when they came, they were bringing the rule of the UK of Britain here. It didn't work out for the Brits too well after about 100 years, but but that was the idea to extend the rule of the homeland here. So when God calls us sojourners or says we're citizens of heaven, He does not simply mean we wait to go back home, but that we bring the taste of home here. So that we extend the rule and the reign and demonstrate that display the glory of Jesus Christ where he has placed us. That the church should be like an outpost for the kingdom. So that's what it means for us to be sojourners. And then Paul, Peter says, we, he goes on and he says we're exiles. Exiles. Now that is a privilege and that's a challenge. Let me say, the privilege is we belong to God. We get to represent Jesus Christ in this world, in the power of the Spirit. That's a privilege. The challenge is, that means we are both going to live simultaneously uh, for the world around us and against the world around us. Sometimes Augustine once said, we are to live against the world for the good of the world. That's what it means to, to be excellent. There are times when we have to resist the dominant culture 
because it is antithetical. It is opposing the gospel. But even when we do that, the posture is because we love the people in our world. And we want the best for people in our world. So the posture is we stand against the world for the good of the world, for the sake of the world. That's what it means for us to be exiles. Okay, so who are we? We say we are beloved, strangers, and exiles. Okay, now what are we to be known for? Let's go, let's uh, um, walk a little further down this path. Um, One of the first things I would say that you see in this passage is we are to be known for holiness. Uh, Notice what Peter says in verse 11. We are to be known for abstaining from the passions of the flesh. There are evil passions and desires that wage war against our souls. Now, I just want us to stop just for a minute and consider the context. Do you remember who Peter's writing? These are Christians who are suffering for their faith. Some of these Christians may have lost family members who have been martyred. There are probably Christians in this congregation who have either been in jail or there are church members who have received this who, are, who, who have relatives who are in jail for, for confessing Christ. Uh, there is a, by this point, by the time Peter's writing, and Peter himself is going to die at the hands of Nero, the emperor at the time, uh, there, are, there is persecution against Christians. So if you're thinking about a battle and the kind of war against Christianity, surely you would think that that is what Peter's going to talk about. But he doesn't. That's not the battle he talks about in this letter. Um, he starts with the daily battle going on in their own hearts. Uh, Peter doesn't say, okay, guys, you need to get away from all these people who want to do you harm. The war is on. No, he says, abstain from the desires of the flesh that are waging war on your soul. In other words, Peter says, I am less concerned about what unbelievers will do to your body than I am what sin will do to your soul. Or for 21st century Americans, I am less concerned about what the government will do to your tax-exempt status than I am what compromise will do to your congregation. So here you've got these suffering Christians, beleaguered Christians, and Peter talks about the own struggle that they have going on in their heart first. Here's Here's the takeaway for me from this. We should be more concerned about this war than any culture war. Now, that's not to say there aren't real issues that are pressing in on us and that demand our attention. And it's not to say that political debates over religious liberty or the rights of conscience or racial justice, the preservation of societal space for Christianity's distinctive sexual ethic to flourish, all of that is important, okay? All of that is important. But I think Peter's words here remind us, or at least lift up the possibility of this frightening prospect that you could possibly win a culture war, and lose your souls in the process. Uh, our, our focus on our rights, on human flourishing, the common good, that, that's really not of much value if while we are focusing on morality in the world, we fail to pursue holiness in our own hearts. Fighting for your rights in society is pointless if you're not fighting for righteousness in your heart. Pursuing Christ. That's where the biggest battle is, and I think that's why Peter focuses our attention here. Listen, we will not be prophetic if we only see what is political. The prophet 
must see above and beyond the politics of the day. The prophet sees beyond the political position to the people behind those positions. And I'm just going to say, it is harder and harder for us to be faithful in this way, in this day, because of the, it is, it is, and it is going to, and I'm just going to predict, it's going to get harder for us to actually be able to stand above or have our bearings that, that be grounded in something other than the political partisanship of our era. Harder for Christians to defy political categories, to go against their party here and there. Harder for Christians to be truth tellers no matter what it costs us. And the reason why it's about to get harder, I'm, we're going to take a little bit of a, it's not a rabbit trail because I actually have got it here, but I just, I, I, we're, we're, I'm, we're taking a little bit of a side street here because I, I want you, you may have noticed this is happening and I want to explain why it's happening. Have you noticed how the political realm has begun to infringe on every single aspect of our society? Sports, religion, retail, art. I mean, we are witnessing the the political just sort of swelling, taking over everything. And here you say, why is that happening? Why is that happening right now? It doesn't seem like it was always this way. Let me let me give you a little bit of background as to why this is taking place. I wish I could fix it, but I can at least tell you why we got the problem, okay? Um, the first development is that a lot of people are now lifting up their consumer choices to the level of religion. In American society, we are more and more inclined to define ourselves by what we buy, by how we consume. We don't, we don't really buy things just because we need something. We buy something to make a statement, to express who we are. There's a, a writer named Douglas Atkin who says, brands are the new religion. Brands are the new religion. They, they, he's talking about customer loyalty. He says, people express their own identities in what they buy. And remember last night, we talked about people saying, I've got to be true to myself. I have to discover myself. I have to express my inner uniqueness to the world. What is very convenient for a capitalist society? One of the ways that people do that is through the brands that they purchase, the clothes that they wear, the kind of brands that they're seen with, that I, somehow this is shaping, is showing you people are expressing their identities and what they're purchasing. So that's one thing that's happening. Another thing that's happening is that political views have now been lifted to the level of religion. So more and more in our society, people are likely to see political views as non-negotiable. They are aspects of our true selves. They go to the very heart of who we are. I just saw this recently. Surprised me a little. Oh, families have a harder time with a son or daughter who wants to marry someone from an opposing political party than from a different religion. So you say, well, what, what, why is that? What's happening here? Well, see, in a secular age, people say, remember what I said earlier, religion is private. People expect faith to stay on the margins of public life. It's sort of there for personal. So it's something private, something you can turn to for therapy, but not for policy. But listen, that is a myth. It's a lie. And something is going to take the place of religion as the ultimate loyalty. If you push religion over to the side in that way, uh, something is going to replace it. If not God, it'll be the government. If not religion, it's going to be politics. If not evangelism, it'll be political activism. Something is going to replace that because we are 
uh, 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 people who are made to go after something, something higher, some, some sort of transcendent, significant cause. This is what it means to, to be human. And so if, if it's not religion being the base of who you are, something's going to be in the base there. It won't be a void, at least not for long. So you put those two developments together, the rise of consumer choices expressing your identity and the idea that political views are the very essence of who you are, and what happens next? Everything gets politicized. What you buy gets politicized. What you eat gets politicized. What channels you watch on television get politicized. Your, uh, the sports leagues get politicized. Art, Hollywood, entertainment gets politicized. Uh, all, everything becomes political in, in this way. So let, let me... So there, there's the reason for why that's happening and why we're seeing it more and more. Let, but let me now say, okay, well, wh- how, how's the gospel different? The, the gospel challenges that, that convergence of those two developments. And the, the announcement that we have that a crucified Messiah is king of the world, that announcement has to raise our eyes, lift our eyes and our allegiance to something more than a policy proposal or political party. Now, it's true the gospel has political implications, but the gospel demotes politics. It demotes that sphere to a lower place. And the gospel also demands, we need to take note of this, that we see in others, and that means even in our political opponents, the image of God that dignifies all humanity. Uh, understanding that Jesus died for you, that his sacrifice covers your sin, that ought to engender a sense of humility, right? And uh, uh, how we engage the world around us. Um, Oliver O'Donovan, a New Testament scholar from the UK, says, I love this quote. He says, Not every wave of political enthusiasm deserves the attention of the church. The worship that the principalities and powers seek to exact from mankind is a kind of feverish excitement. The first business of the church is to refuse them that worship. There are many times, he says, there are many times when the most pointed political criticism imaginable is to talk about something else. I see Peter doing something like that. In chapter 2, when he could be talking about the political situation of these early Christians and the persecution, he, he doesn't, doesn't go there. So in a world that is increasingly polarized and increasingly politicized, we are to be holy, we're to be different, set apart. That, that certainly means righteous in, in, in our, in our uh, marriages, in our moral lives, and all of this. But one of the ways, what does holiness mean? It means being distinct, right? Set apart. One of the ways we will be distinct in our world is we're going to show by our attitudes and our actions that there is something bigger and more important than politics. If we as the church can't show that, who's going to show the world that? Who's going to show the world that there is something bigger, there's something more important? So holiness, first, we are to be known for. A second characteristic, and you see this in here several times, we should be known for honor. Honor, for living honorably among others. You see this in verse 12? This emphasis on honorable living, you see it in verse 15 and verse 17. Peter says, honor everyone, including the emperor. Peter is very concerned about our conduct. The the word conduct appears 13 times in the Bible. Eight of those times are in Peter's two letters. Peter's very focused on this. Now, some of you may think, wait, okay, so we're to live 
in public where everyone sees us and you think, well, didn't you talk about earlier how we should just be okay with the world? Not, you know, thinking badly of us. We just need to live in the love of God, live and know what the church believes. Um, you know, I, I could give you, I, I want to be careful here because I could have given you the impression that I was saying something like, you know, it doesn't matter what the world thinks. It only matters what God thinks or what your church thinks. I don't think Peter would go so far as to say that, that it doesn't matter what the world thinks. Um, we are, it matters what God thinks most importantly, but Peter expects us to live out in front of other people and to have a certain kind of reputation, to, to be seen in a certain way. Now, you, you see this kind of tension, this I live for God, but I live before the world. You, you see this even in the Sermon on the Mount. Have you ever noticed this, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount? You've got Matthew chapter 6. Jesus says, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, right? Don't, don't give with trumpets. Don't uh, uh, fast and disfigure your face. Don't uh, um, uh, pray and, and, uh, and make a big show about it. You see that in Matthew 6. Some people could take Jesus' words in Matthew 6 and say, every good thing you do should be in private and secret. Don't let anyone see. But that would go against something that Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5. At the beginning of the sermon, what does he say? Let your light shine before others so that they will see your good works and do what? Glorify your Father in heaven, right? So somehow Jesus is able to put those two things together. And I think Peter's echoing the words of Jesus here. He's saying, look, your motivation should be faithfulness to God, not the praise of people. But at the same time, you are living out and among other people. You're living in this world that, that God has placed you in. So our conduct has to be before other people so that God will get the glory. So, okay, I just talked a little bit about politics being demoted to a lower sphere. Do not hear me saying that means that Christians should just throw their hands up and just be like, I'm done with all politics. I'm not done with all political engagement. I will never again get into another conversation on Facebook. Lord help me. You know, those kind, I know some of you are thinking, I, I'm just not, this is, I'm just never going to go there again. Now, for some of us, it may be good for us to take a breather. Okay. Uh, it may, if that's the way the Lord is leading you, amen. For others, though, I'm not saying it's a, it's like this pullback where we don't care anymore. That wouldn't be loving God or our neighbors. You've got to love God in every sphere of life, including the political. The question is not if we will be involved, but how will we be involved? It, it's a change of posture, not political persuasion. We cannot retreat. We cannot be indifferent. We can't just enter your house of worship and your prayer closet and as if holiness is just a personal and private thing. No, Peter says, honor everyone. He's calling you to holiness in the way that people will see that you're on mission in this world. Uh, theologian... Vince Bacotti from uh, Wheaton College says, holiness is not supposed to be cloaked in the chambers of pious hearts, but displayed in the public domains of home, school, culture, and politics. We're to be out in society. Now, some people will see that and they will say, I don't think that's possible because we're going to be lied about. People are, what, if, what if we try to engage and people slander us? People tell lies about what it is they say we believe. Or, well, Peter talks about that too. In fact, Peter seems to expect that that's going to happen. I, I mean, Jesus said people would lie about his followers. 
right? Don't be surprised. Be blessed. You're, you're, blessed are you when others persecute you and revile you and slander you. And then Peter here assumes this in verse 12. So what does Peter say? Oh, just avoid people. Avoid the world. No. He says, live in such a way that you silence the foolish talk of these ignorant people. Live in such a way that the slander that they would throw your way doesn't stick. Let me give you an example of where I think Christians have done a good job in answering slander with action. 25 years ago, I mean, we've been, it's been longer than that. We've been in a protracted debate in our society over abortion for a long time. The pro-life cause has grown, has had setbacks and failures, but also gains in different ways, um, the, the dignity of the unborn being a, an aspect of our society. It used to be, back in the 90s, uh, one of the common complaints, common things that were thrown at, at Christians were, you only care about the unwed mother until that she has that baby, and then you don't care anymore. You don't help. You're not really involved. You only care about life if it's unborn, basically. Um, that was a common, I mean, you would hear that thrown out. It's still here occasionally, but I tell you, that slander doesn't have traction when you consider the fact that there are all across America in the last 25 years now, there's been the rise of pregnancy support centers staffed mainly by volunteers, mainly by Christians who walk with women in difficult circumstances through pregnancy and then beyond in all sorts of ways. In fact, pregnancy support centers in the United States now outnumber abortion clinics two to one. So the idea that Christians don't care about anything but the birth of the baby is demonstrably false. Occasionally, people will, will still throw that accusation out there, but it is evident. And I've even seen in some comments and Heard, I've even seen some pro-choice people push back against that on behalf of Christians to say, well, you can say this, you can say they're wrong, you can't say they don't, they don't care. Look at this or that, or they'll, they'll, they'll use actual stories. They, we, we've, we've had to, to, to live in such a way to make that accusation demonstrably untrue. And so I asked, we'll have to do the same in the next generation. Uh, perhaps this is going to be to the way that we show love and compassion to LGBT friends and neighbors who we disagree with on the nature of marriage, on the nature of what it means to be human. Uh, we, we ought to be so kind, compassionate to friends and neighbors that we disagree with that there should be no doubt of our love. I hope in the next 25 years, Christians will maintain biblical conviction on what it means to be man and woman and what it means to be a believer in Jesus Christ, what it means to be faithful when it comes to our sexuality and our sexual ethics. And at the same time, the slander that all Christians are just sort of hateful bigots that we will have demonstrated through our actions in our lives, that is not true. And that we would have LGBT friends and neighbors, family members even, who would say, you know what? I think they're crazy, but I don't doubt they love me. That's what, that's what we ought to live for in the next in the next generation. So let, let, me, let me apply these words of Peter in a social media context um, because I think that's important for us. We live in a social media age. Um, remember, the Apostle Peter is writing these people who live in this terrible age. I mean, this emperor, Nero, have you ever read about Nero? The guy was crazy. 
uh, a maniac. Set fire to Rome and burn. Then, then uh, you know, played. Have you heard the fiddling while Rome burns? I mean, this was Nero. Then blame the Christians, right? Scapegoated them, um, and yet Peter says, "Honor the emperor." Even the bloodthirsty sexual maniac on Caesar's throne is supposed to get honor from Christians suffering under them. And then Paul backs Peter up. Paul says we should outdo one another in showing honor. You know that that verse from Romans. Um, Listen, uh, you may have thought Obama was bad. You may think Trump is bad. Neither one of them is Nero. And Peter said honor... Nero. Now, how, how does that make sense? Now, I, it's funny. When, when I have uh, delivered this message in the Obama era, I got one reaction. And now that I deliver it in the Trump era, I get the, a different reaction. It's the same truth, no matter who's in power, right? Uh, so here, here's, here's where, it, when we talk about honor and we talk about how we engage online, let me just say, uh, have you, some of you are familiar with those, um, uh, uh, you have on your phone, perhaps this... Um, these uh, um, apps or these uh, filters, you know, that, that will, um, like, accountability so that, you know, a, a guy will, will have this uh, purity filter on, on their phone so that anything that's coming in that would be uh, um, explicit or bad or something that you, to avoid temptation, that winds up getting sent to someone else. So it's something, something of a filter that protects your kids from, from, from stuff or protects you, uh, protects your heart, things like that. Uh, so you hear about these filters that about what comes into our phones. I have often longed for someone to create a filter that would protect what goes out of our phones. I would call it the honor filter. Before we post the blog, before we leave the comment, before we write on the Facebook, before we you know, are on Twitter, whatever, that, that we would uh, uh, ask questions like, is my point of view offered with respect to people who disagree? Do I assume the best of those who are my political opponents? Does it look like I'm raging against injustice or that I'm raging against people made in the image of God? That's a good question we should ask. Am I showing honor when other people revile me and slander me? I, I, I never should a Christian say, well, he started it <laughs> online, as if that somehow justifies us being less than Christian. Listen, for a Christian, it's not about winning a culture war. It's in how we engage our neighbors. Our honor should be on full display wherever we are. God calls us to witness, not always to win. You should try to win people more than the argument. So holiness, honor, and one last thing, you see submission here. Submission. We should be known for this. We submit because we are free because of Jesus, and that's why we serve. We serve. I love it. He says, live as free people, and then he talks about being God's slaves. Let me, let me tell you, you're, every human being is a slave to something. You're either a slave to the evil one or you're a servant of King Jesus. One way or another, you're serving someone or something. There's no such thing as this idea of freedom of that I don't serve anyone. Not really. But slavery to God is actually the truest freedom that we could have because that's what we were made for. So I want to close with this letter that inspires me. Every time I read it, it's this letter uh, written to Diognetus, written about 100 years after Jesus died. So AD 130, this is an old, old letter, folks. Uh, but it's this description of the earliest Christians. And it just inspires me and makes me want, want to say, oh, Lord, that this be true of us. Okay, so 
uh, and it just hits on so many of the themes we just talked about. So listen to some parts of this letter, okay? Uh, talking about the Christians a hundred years after Jesus says this, they dwell in their own countries, but simply as sojourners. As citizens, they share in all things with others and yet endure all things as if foreigners. Every foreign land is to them as their native country and every land of their birth is a land of strangers. See that tension there? That I'm at home, but I'm not at home. You have that going all the way back to the almost the time of Jesus. Next, the letter describes the holiness of the early Christians. They marry as do all others. They beget children, but they do not destroy their offspring. Right there you have the pro-life ethic to the very earliest church. They have a common table, but not a common bed. There you have the distinctive sexual ethic of Christianity, right? They are in the flesh, but they do not live after the flesh. Now look at what it says about how Christians dealt in public life. They pass their days on earth, but they are citizens of heaven. They obey the prescribed laws and at the same time surpass the laws by their lives. In other words, they don't even need the laws because they have something internal that's greater than whatever the the government would be doing to restrict them. They love all men and are persecuted by all. They are unknown and condemned. They are put to death and restored to life. Now, Now look here what it says about the early Christians' witness. They are poor, yet make many rich. They are in lack of all things and yet abound in all. They are dishonored, and yet in their very dishonor are glorified. They are evil spoken of and yet are justified. They are reviled and bless. They are insulted and repay the insult with honor. They do good yet are punished as evildoers. When punished, they rejoice as if quickened into life. They are assailed by the Jews as foreigners and are persecuted by the Greeks. And yet those who hate them are unable to assign any reason for their hatred. I read that and I say, you know, I pray that this would be said of our church and our generation. That's why we need Christians to shine the light through our local congregations, to invest in our local congregations, to invest in our churches, to build these beautiful communities of faith that shine out in a world of darkness. Listen, the church is going to be around a lot longer than today's political parties and empires. They are going to fade away. So if you want to put roots down somewhere, put them down in the local church. After all, the gates of hell are shaking, not because of an election, but because of Easter. And so that's why ultimately we have hope and we have joy even when we engage in public life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for a gospel that is good news no matter where we live in the world. Good news no matter what might be happening in Washington, D.C., other parts of the country. We thank you, Father, that we are able to stand in this long line of saints. goes back through multiple kinds of government, multiple kinds of public life, Lord, that you have been faithful to your people and that we stand in a long line of people who have been faithful to you. I pray that you would help us to take these truths that we've discussed this morning, plant them deep in our hearts, help us to be known, Father, for holiness, for honor, for submission, that people would see your glory in the way that we respond, the way that we live in the society that you place us in. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.